A few years ago, I decided to go through a number of the classics. I had a job where I could listen to audiobooks all day long, and at a certain point, it seemed wise to dive deep into the repertoire of Western literature. And so I ended up reading a book uh, by a guy named Homer. No, this isn't a picture of him. It's just some Greek statue. It was as close as I could get. So you may have heard of Homer or the books he wrote, The Iliad and The Odyssey. I was first introduced to The Odyssey through a children's program called Wishbone. Some of you are old enough to remember that one. Yeah, it's awesome. But for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, it's about a man named Odysseus and his journey home. See, he had left for war. And in ancient days, when you leave for war, you don't have cell phones or a post service. Your loved ones have no idea if you've made it out or not. And Odysseus has been gone from home for 20 years. His baby son has never seen his face as a grown man now. And his wife is waiting for him to arrive home. And so it's a journey. It's about Odysseus trying to come home and the people who are waiting for him. But there's a problem. Odysseus, I mean, it's a fictional story. Odysseus hears from the gods that things at home are not going well. See, his wife happens to be super attractive as well as very rich. And so there's a bunch of young, lazy men who've come calling and have taken up residence in Odysseus's estate, living high on the hog on someone else's bill, waiting for this woman, Penelope, to marry one of them. And because they're young and they're strong and there's a lot of them, she can't do anything to kick them out. And her son is being mistreated by these potential future father-in-laws, or stepdads actually, uh, which are no good. And so we're eager for Odysseus to come home and to try to set things right if he can. To make a long story short, he ends up washing up on the shore of his homeland. And we find out that someone has been waiting for him. His best friend, his dog, has been coming out every morning for 20 years to see if his master has come home. And when he sees his master, he rejoices and then dies of old age and contentment. It's a sweet, sad story. See, the dog was waiting for his master, and I would just say, like, what are we waiting for? Or if I could rephrase the question, what are we hoping for? Because all of us live in expectation of something. And that something changes our behaviors, it changes the way that we think, it, it changes the, the decisions that we make in our work environment. And for some people, our hope is to be able to uh, afford a bigger house in Portland or retire to the countryside out of Portland, depending on who you are. For some of you, the hope is that you would graduate school and be able to get a job and no longer have to attend classes and deal with syllabuses and pay student loans. Um, for some of us, financial freedom. For some of us, the hope, the dream is to be a parent one day. Um, we try that, or, or to be grandparents, or whatever it is, um, to be the world-class athlete. We make decisions based on what we are hoping for the future. And see, in the Bible, and particularly in the letters of Paul that we've been going through, Paul holds out a hope for the future, the hope that one day, Jesus, God's Son, and the Lord of the universe is going to return to earth to set things right. The day of the Lord, judgment day, is coming, and it will be good, and it will be glorious for those who are waiting for Jesus. And for everyone else who's opposing Jesus, it's not going to go so great. And this is such a key idea for Paul that in his letter to the Thessalonians, he refers to it uh, like over three times, uh, twice as we approach this morning's passage. 
So in chapter 1, Paul is writing to this church that he planted and then got <laughs> ran out of town, so he didn't have very long with these people. But after hearing that they're well, he writes this rejoicing letter where he says, guys, I, I, I'm praising God because you guys have shared Christ with other people so fervently, so eagerly, that everyone's talking about it. Paul is down in Athens or maybe Corinth at this point, and he is hearing the rumors and the stories from other people about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's, there's this dark side to the story that one day judgment will sweep over the whole earth, um, that everything that is unclean and un- impure and, and evil and wicked will be taken care of. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that level of judgment will affect every person on the face of the planet because honestly, none of us are all that great. And Jesus came to save us and to deliver us. And the Thessalonians are longing, longing for the return of Christ. Paul repeats back in, in chapter 3, a little later, he says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He's eagerly anticipating the day that Jesus comes back. And so in chapter 4, he says, one of the ways that we do that together as a community is by living a holy and blameless life, particularly in our sexual purity and in the way that we love one another. All right, it's about holiness. It's about blamelessness. It's about waiting for Jesus. But I don't know if you guys ever encountered, while you're waiting, severe disappointment. The Thessalonians did. See, as they're waiting for Jesus to return and to bring the kingdom of God, people in their life that they love, Jesus' followers, have passed away. Possibly because of persecution. We don't really know. And there's this heartache. And there's this grief. And like many of us do when we mourn the tragedies that befall us, there's this question, why? And what now? And as a Jesus follower, what does this mean? That these guys are now dead. And Paul is going to write to answer the concerns of their heart. And so he says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now notice he doesn't say so that you don't grieve. Sadness is a present reality, even for Christians. But he says that you don't grieve like everyone else who has no hope. In our modern secular society, the, uh, the common uh, cultural narrative says that this world, it's all there is. The material universe is all that there is. There's no such thing as God or, or spirits or the supernatural. We die and our bodies become fertilizer and we feed worms. It's not a new idea. Even in Paul's day in ancient Greece, uh, a popular inscription that was found on tombs read, I was not and I was. I am not and I don't care. <laughs> Or another one from Italy, this one's my favorite. He says, if you want to know who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. These days I'm nothing more than than the remains of my funeral pyre. Or uh, to update it, to modern day, I heard of a a mom didn't believe in God or anything else, and her son was asking about what happened to my cousin, a young boy who'd passed away from cancer. And she said, well, uh, his body's dead now, and we, we bury him 
in the ground, and he becomes fertilizer that feeds the plants and the, and the trees and, you know, part of the circle of life. And the tiny four-year-old ran out of the house crying, I don't want him to be fertilizer. Yeah, no hope. That's not the way it is for us Christians. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The history tells us that a man who knew ahead of time that he was going to his death would be buried, and on the third day he would rise from the dead. This actually happened. And the people who saw it went to their graves and spent the rest of their life telling other people that this actually happened, which either makes it one of two things. Either it is the most elaborate hoax in the history of the world with people whose uh, intent to deceive is far greater than any modern uh, example you could possibly pick, that no one, no one cried foul on this one and they went to their graves and suffered torture and death in order to, to make this lie work. It, it's either that or it is truth so spectacular that it just might change the world. Of course, we're here as Christians because we say, no, uh, he really did rise from the dead and that changes everything about human history. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who have died, only we now, as Christians, we use a, a euphemism. We say they fell asleep. Why? Because they're going to wake up one day. Far from being the end, death is merely a waypoint on the journey. It's halftime or maybe even a commercial break. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute, folks. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, it's time, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They come out of the ground first. Paul's drawing deep on Old Testament imagery. Uh, there's a lot to say there. My favorite one is the trumpet call of God. I think echoing uh, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, when the trumpet of God calls, it's time for God's people to come meet with God. When Numbers 10 uh, says that when the trumpet calls, it's time for God to remember his people and to deliver them. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 5, the time will come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so when this happens, those that we've lost will rise. They're going to rise first. And then after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. A double reunion's going on. First, the dead rise. And we're like, whoa, you're here. And then Jesus comes and we're like, whoa, he's here. And we all go get to meet him up there in the air to welcome him. If you ever heard of the term the rapture, this is where we get it from, that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But that phrase, to, to meet him in the air, I've, I've come to understand, I think it's different than how I used to think of it. I used to think Jesus would come in, kind of like the Starship Enterprise, and beam us up and take us to warp speed nine out to God's space. Um, but what I've actually learned is that that phrase, to meet the Lord in the air, it's, it's a very particular term. And it's used elsewhere in the Bible. It's used in Jesus' parable of uh, the wedding banquet. When the, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And the virgins go out with their lamps and they meet the bridegroom not to leave, 
but to escort him into the wedding banquet. There's a party to go to. Or in Acts 28, when Paul is, you know, under guard, being escorted to Rome, Christians come out to meet him and then go with him back into Rome. We don't go up to Jesus to then take off with him. We go up to Jesus as he's coming down to establish his kingdom here on earth. And it kind of made sense as I was thinking about about life a few days ago, standing on top of the hill realizing, you know, I can see a really long way. And I bet before automobiles and planes, people are walking. And so you can see your company coming from miles away. (laughs) And you've got to sit there for a couple hours as they finally make their way to you. Man, if this was someone I'm eager to meet, I wouldn't wait. I'd go out to meet them. Go out and we'll, we'll start the reunion out there and then we're going to head inside. We've got a couple miles to walk along the way. Jesus is coming for his people and we'll all be together. And Paul says, encourage each other with these words. See, this is what they needed to know. This is what we needed to know, that those who've died in Jesus will be raised first and join us as we go to meet Jesus. This gives us hope. We're not like everyone else. So when my grandfather passed away in 2020, people were like, how are you doing? I said, well, he's 86 years old. He has loved Jesus for his entire life. He's been married to my grandmother for 65 something years. Other than the fact that he had Alzheimer's, what more is there to hope for? He's going to come back one day. And someone who's old, old, old and full of life, that's an easier tale to tell. But another friend named Ashley she passed away September 11th, 2005. She was 18. It was the summer after we graduated high school and cancer emaciated her body until the thickest part of her lower leg was her bone and it went in from there. And cancer robbed me of my friend. It robbed her family of their daughter, of their sister. But Ashley knew Jesus. We're not gonna get in ahead of her. She's not gonna miss out on the party. When Jesus returns, she will be with us and we'll all go get to meet Jesus together. It'll be a good day. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, <laughs> we don't need to write to you. This isn't knowledge you need. This is something you already know. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So let it be said once and forevermore, you will never hear from my lips or hear a family of grace that the Lord will come on May 12th, 2011, or whatever that prediction may be. Anytime you hear the newspapers that someone has figured out when Jesus is returning, comfortably sigh, chuckle a little bit, and then promptly ignore it, because <laughs> it's not true. He comes like a thief in the night. Um, it will be surprising. It will be sudden. You will not know. And as many of you who have been robbed understand, you walk out one day and you're like, where is my car? I thought I just parked it right here. And after about five minutes of scanning the parking lot, you realize, dang it, someone stole my car. It'll be like that. See, while people are saying peace and safety, all is fine, all is well, we're doing well, destruction will come upon them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. Judgment is coming over the whole world. And if people aren't ready, it'll be too late. But you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness. So that this day should surprise you like a thief. No, you're all children of the light, children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. When I worked for Providence, uh, I had a coworker who was a security guard. And I often got in really late 
you know, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning sometimes. And so there's no one else in the building really other than him. And it's a big building with a large parking lot. I was like, surely, surely I could sneak in without him noticing. I had this swell plan. So I, you know, turn my lights off early, drive slowly through the parking lot. I park it, get out of my truck, proceed to start sneaking, and I make it about 10 feet from my car, and he pops up. He's like, how's it going? He didn't know I was trying to sneak in on him, but I was like, dang it! I was so upset because he was ready. Because he was ready. That's his job, and he does it really, really well. We, why would we be surprised? Of course, this is going to happen. And, I, I mean, the examples are innumerable of things in life that are like this. Very important, not seemingly urgent. So we all know death may come. I don't know how many of you have made a will. I would encourage you to do so. We all know that uh, your car will break down at some point, and that you should have some money set aside for that. And yet, many of us don't. It's like that, only way, way more important. When Jesus comes, people will not be ready. And Paul uses this metaphor of, of darkness versus light. Uh, to live in darkness, to live as if God is not a real reality, as if your decisions are private and no one will ever find out, compared to those who live in the day who understand that what they do is seen <laughs> and known and, and will be exposed. He says, we are children of the light, children of the day. We are people who are just ready for the fact that Christ is going to return. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. They can no longer pay attention to reality around them. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith, trust in God, and, and love for God and one another as a breastplate. This will defend us. This will keep us safe to trust in God, to love one another. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. The, the God is the one who's going to save us. Our own power can't save us. Our 401k can't save us. The stock market can't save us. The American government and the American military cannot save us. Our, our pursuits of pleasure, our pursuits of relationships that we think this person will fulfill every, every desire within our human heart. Um, if you haven't been burned by chasing after those things yet, I'll just say they will burn you eventually because the people who've made it to the top of those respective ladders have all said, yeah, the view up here is rather bleak. It's rather bleak. The hope of salvation in Jesus as a helmet. Because God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He loved the world enough that he gave his son so that anyone who believes in him won't die, but will receive eternal life. God has destined you for life with him. See, Christ, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Paul said that now twice, that we will be with Jesus forever. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the hope we have. I'm enough of a science fiction and fantasy geek uh, to really appreciate the science fiction stories that present eternal life as the worst curse of all. Because if you're the only one who has it and you outlive everyone who's ever known you and ever loved you, you are in a living hell that you cannot escape from. That is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that you live forever with your loved ones, with God. 
that's a better story. And we need to be encouraged and we need to be built up in this. We need reminded and we need taught of this all the time. So here's what we need to be reminded of. Jesus is going to show up suddenly and without warning. So be ready. Jesus died so we could live with him forever. Oh yeah. And we put on faith and we put on hope and we put on love because we are destined for salvation. What God has done for us should prompt us out of love to good works. I mean, maybe it's guilt. I know when we were waiting for someone, like waiting for your dad to come home when you're a kid. Sometimes it's fear that causes you to do what you're supposed to do. And sometimes it's love. More often it's fear when it's my dad. But when I'm waiting for my wife to get home after she's been gone for a trip, sometimes Sometimes it's love that I say, I want this home to be perfect for when she arrives. So, to summarize, here's the passage main point this morning. I think we need to live in light of the resurrection and the return of King Jesus. That, that's it. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. Jesus died and he rose again to save us from our sins. And he's coming back one day to set all things right. And this is what we're waiting for. This is the orienting point on the horizon that all of our thoughts, decisions, emotions, everything is to come into line with this truth. And from here on out to the rest of the letter, I think Paul is going to exemplify a number of ways that the Thessalonians can do that. So he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you, uh, who urge you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. So people who point you to the horizon of Jesus, yeah, honor them. Live in peace with each other. We might as well start practicing now because y'all are going to be together for an awfully long time. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Again, we're rather slow as individuals. And this takes discernment to know where are people at and you don't respond the same way to everyone. Some people need a loving kick in the bottom. Other people just, just really need a, a hug. God give us grace to know the difference. Now make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. And rejoice always. And pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's really simple. Uh, live a holy life. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's really simple. Give thanks always. Why? Because anything, no matter how bad life is right now, this is not the end. This is barely the end of the beginning. Things will get better because Jesus rose from the dead. And do not quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what's good and reject every kind of evil. And I think all of this is one section. So don't quench the spirit. I think he's talking about uh, don't reject people who come to try to, to tell you what God has to say in a particular situation. Prophecy. <laughs> so that's one edge of the boat to fall off on. The other one is that you could accept it without thinking about it. Because they're not all good. All right? So value people who want to speak to you in the name of, of God, but test it. And if it's good, hold on to it. And if it's not good, then uh, throw it out. And he concludes with a third prayer in the short letter. He says, Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, that is, make you holy through and through. And may your whole spirit, 
your soul, your body, all of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he shows up, man, you're ready and you're, you're perfect. But then Paul concludes, he says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it, which is some of the best news ever because not only can we not save ourselves, we can't keep ourselves. Uh, this is what's good about Jesus. Jesus died to save us and Jesus will keep us. God is the one who's going to ensure that when Christ returns, we're ready. That's some good news. And brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Around here, we like the holy handshake or the holy hug. Um, we're not a culture that kisses you. And if you ever traveled overseas and had someone grab your face and kiss you, you know that still goes on in parts of the world and it makes you quite uncomfortable as an American. So holy handshakes, holy hugs are great around here. This is your family. You're going to be with them a long time. And I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. Amen. So again, the point, live in light of the resurrection and the return of the king. Here are some ways that Paul says we can do it. In light of Jesus' resurrection and return, we live a different life. And that affects all of us. When it comes to grief and grieving, we're different. It's not that we're not sad. It's not that, that we, we don't mourn, that we don't call things a tragedy. There are real tragedies in the world, but our grief looks different. Uh, a lady you may have heard of, her name is Ruth Graham. She was married to the late evangelist Billy Graham on her tombstone epitaph. It reads, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> she got it. She got it. You think this is the end? No, my friend, this is just the beginning. We're, we're finally underway. The Christ has risen from the dead and he's coming back again. It, it's way better than the other ones, like, well, this sucks, and uh, boy, it's dark down here, and other things that others have engraved on their tombstones. And not only to death and grief, we respond differently to life. Because, you know, culture, we have no hope, there's nothing after death, therefore, YOLO, you only live once. Which is a wonderful little maxim to justify pretty much anything that you want to do, however stupid it might be. I was watching a movie the other day, and for those of you who came camping with us last weekend, I apologize, I'm going to repeat the, the explanation, but we watched the movie Sing 2. And in the opening number of a musical, pay close attention because they'll tell you what the movie is going to be about. Here's the lyrics of the song. If you don't like the world you're living in, we'll take a look around. <laughs> At least you got friends. You see, I called my old lady for a friendly word, and she picked up the phone, and she dropped it on the floor. Ah, ah, is all I heard. Oh dear. Are we going to let the elevator bring us down? Oh no. Let's go. Let's go crazy. Let's go nuts. Let's look for the purple bananas until they put us in the truck. Let's go. All right. We're going to go absolutely insane. Why? We're all excited. We're all excited. We don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we're all going to die. And when we do, what's it all for? What's it all for? Well, you better live now before the Grim Reaper comes knocking on your door. And I mean, it was peppy, and, and music is pleasant to listen to. I just paused the video and said, kids, let me just tell you what's going on right now. They're saying, death is coming for us all. Therefore, make the most of it right now and go crazy, because the end's coming. So, so what you can expect in the rest of this movie is to see that lived out. And, and boy, that's exactly what happens. A bunch of people making some really terrible decisions, because death is coming for us all. Therefore, Go for it, even if that means making a bunch of illegal 
uh, actions and breaking all sorts of boundaries and stealing from people and anything so long as you can make it to your dream before death comes for you. Wouldn't necessarily recommend the movie, but the music's really good. You only live once. Why not satisfy your appetites? Why not live that way? Death is coming for your all. And yet the Christian response is, no, Jesus is coming for you all. So one day, judgment will arrive. And this is, this is good news. This is good news for the women and children that have been beaten and oppressed by men who want nothing more than to use them. This is good news for those third world countries that have been run over and how all the resources stolen. This is good news for those tribes and those peoples who, uh, due to nothing wrong for themselves, have had uh, covenants broken with them and been round out of their house and their sacred lands. This is good news for us all. The judgment is coming on the world, and no, no one gets away with anything. And this is bad news. This is some really, really bad news that Jesus is, is coming because when he comes, no one is found innocent in his sight. Uh, we're all pretty messed up. We've all done things uh, we don't really want anyone else to know. But everything will come to light when Christ returns. So for us as Christians, we live different in light of Jesus' return. We live a holy life, a life set apart to something special. So again, a few weeks ago, I said like an athlete that says, no, I won't eat that food and I won't do those things because I'm training to be able to do something I cannot presently do. I want to be world-class in my craft. An athlete lives a holy life. President Biden lives a holy life. He doesn't get to escape or run away from the stresses of the state. It's on his shoulders. We have appointed him for a special task. He lives a holy life. There are certain things, there's holy places in America and around the world that are so beautiful that we set it apart as a national park, as a, a pristine place whose beauty must be preserved and cannot be soiled because it is too precious. It's holy. I mean, there, there's more than that. And then many of us have entered into holy matrimony, if we still use those terms, a holy marriage, which means that we say no to, like I said no to, I don't know, 3.7 billion other people on the planet to possibly, you know, be my spouse for one woman named Kara. And she's mine and I'm hers. And my yes to her is a no to everything else. It's a holy separation. So although those pictures and more, God has called us to live a holy life. It, it's not to be isolated and boring and to have no fun. It is, it is just the greatest, most meaningful life ever that, yes, at times requires incredible sacrifices, but Christ has risen from the dead. This is worth it. We Christians, we're not stupid. We are just playing the longest and, uh, investment game you've ever heard of, and let me tell you, the ROI on this thing is incredible. And so we have a source of strength. Our destiny is to be with Jesus. I say a source of strength because many Christians have greater resources for tackling the trouble of life than anyone else in the world, but they don't know it or they don't use it. But we have this at our disposal because Christ wants to be with us forever. So in light of Jesus' return, we invest in the church. We bear fruit. Love one another as I have loved you. Turns out God is not that impressed with buildings. He's not impressed with 401k retirement plans, with fancy yachts, with names on buildings, or even, you know, names on countries. God loves people. 
and he loves taking care of the weak and the humble and the oppressed. He doesn't need our strength. He loves trust and good works. My family uh, sometimes says that uh, Kara and I inspire them because we live in an apartment with four kids. Whatever. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then maybe we're making a few mistakes and not living a, a very good life. I like to think of it, know that we're, we're just making some really solid investments. Uh, they just haven't come to fruition quite yet. And so we try to invest in the church. You guys try to invest in the church. And so we comfort one another. And we build one another up all the time. So here's, here's a commitment. Here at Family of Grace, <laughs> this is the goal. You can tell us whether we succeed at it or not. The goal is that we'll teach one another and we'll remind one another of the things that are true because we need to hear it often because we're all stupid. Personally speaking here, I'm, I'm stupid. I forget things oh so quickly. I, I need to hear something again and again and again and again. And maybe I heard it this morning, but it's been a rough afternoon. Uh, please tell me it again. Christ has risen from the dead. He's coming back. I need to be reminded of this. And so we're going to do everything we can to help you walk closer to Jesus and ideally to train you to help other people walk closer to Jesus. And Paul gives us a few examples of what that can look like. It might look like getting in someone's face and lovingly confronting them because they're either lazy or disruptive. And to say, I love you and I'm committed to your good, but what you're doing, it's not good for you. And it's not good for anyone else. And it needs to stop. Or maybe we encourage those who are disheartened. Or maybe we help those who are weak and may God give us discernment to know the difference. And we're patient with everyone. And in light of Jesus' return, we tell others the good news. And part of the good news that God loved the world and he sent his son to save it is to warn people about the bad news. The judgment is coming upon the world and no one escapes unless they trust in salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we welcome them by the way we live, by the words that we speak, to come follow Jesus. Not only does it <laughs> reap eternal rewards, uh, it also leads to a far more satisfying life than almost anything else that you're likely to find right now. But it's costly. It's free. It just costs you everything you have. Still a good deal. See, in the Odyssey, when Odysseus comes home, it's really good news for his wife, who the following day was going to finally have to pick a suitor to marry, and none of them are great. It's good news for his son, who's grown up without a father, and the only men, uh, model, uh, you know, uh, models of manhood are these, <laughs> these creeps filling up their home. And so the high point of the Odyssey is this grisly scene where Odysseus um, locks the doors and proceeds to slaughter all the people in his house, running through their blood. It's um, evident that the Greeks, like the Americans, like violence and gratuitous blood uh, in their entertainment. So I don't know that I'd recommend it. But there is something viscerally satisfying about seeing people who have been so heinous in their acts, so wicked in their choices, so, so evil and malevolent towards those who had no power to resist them, get what's coming to them. There is something good about justice. Only in this story, it's Odysseus who's reaping vengeance with his own hand. In the story of Christ, when he returns, it's a story of someone who gave his life that the world might be saved, who suffered far more than any one of us does, who knows personally the effects of injustice and oppression, who is kinder wiser, 
and with a more finely tuned sense of justice than anyone we have ever met. Like, he is the guy I want to come make all things right. He's the guy I want to come and bring justice to the world. His name is Christ, and he's coming back. So guys, here at Family of Grace, may we learn to live in light of the resurrection and the return of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious and good, God, thank you for your Son. God, I thank you that 11 men that Jesus called apostles uh, suffered uh, torture and agony and and rejection from society and, and a lot of suffering to bring this news that Christ has risen from the dead and that he's coming back again. God, I, I believe the testimony they brought. I believe the reality of your work in people's lives, and I thank you. God, I thank you for what you've done in mine. Father, may we trust Jesus today more than we did yesterday. Will you help us as we try to discern uh, the choices that you put in front of us um, in our lives uh, of where to go and what to do, of who to be in relationship with and, and who to avoid relationship with, of how to spend our money and how to spend our time and what to entertain ourselves with and, and what to avoid. Um, God, we long for holiness. We long to be the people we always were meant to be. And we cannot do this without your power, without the working of your spirit in our lives. So please keep us blameless and pure until the day of Christ Jesus and help us to walk worthy of this gospel uh, that you've called us in. So God, I thank you for your son and I'm eager for him to return. Lord, Portland needs him. And the rest of the world does too. So save us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.